0: We have a special treat for you today. I don't want to take up too much time because you're going to want to hear uh, what God wants to speak to you today. And so we have the honor of having Dr. Erez Soref with us today. And he is the president of an organization that is called One for Israel. And you are going to be encouraged and blessed by the word that, that he is going to bring today. Uh, it's, going to be, it's going to be a blessing to you. And before we get into that, though, we have a short little video to introduce and give you some background for him. So if you'll turn your attention to the screen really quick. How come nobody, nobody told me before? I mean, my family, my neighbors, my friends, my people, nobody knows. Nobody tells us. The best kept secret among the Jewish people i was born to a uh, sephardic jewish family uh, my family are babylonian jews on my mom's side and uh, sephardic jews are from spain on my dad's side my mom would try to drag my brothers and me to synagogue maybe he had something to do with our people thousands of years ago but god was very very far away in school we would study the old testament from first grade to 12th grade we study it as history of our people as wisdom literature um, something that one just needs to know being Jewish but not as the Word of God after my military service like a lot of Israelis I decided to travel the world initially in Southeast Asia a lot of Israelis are going there for the mysticism trail and the uh, drug trail I wanted to understand what they believe and so I was exposed to some Hindu and some Buddhist literature I got to to realize that there is a spiritual reality, but that spiritual reality I saw was very, very scary. It was negative. It was dark, but it was very real. I ended up in Amsterdam, Holland, and I came there with merchandise to sell because I ran out of money. It was there that I've met a group of very enthusiastic young believers in Jesus, and I said, uh, "Well, I'm Jewish, and we don't believe in Jesus." And they said, "Why?" Jesus is Jewish. And I said, I'm not sure why, but I'm sure we don't believe in Jesus. As I got to know them, I noticed two things that really drew my attention and it made me curious. One was what they called personal relationship with God. I couldn't understand it. I mean, I could see it. I could see how it works out in their lives. They would pray for one another. They would talk to God like one talks to a friend. Um, it's very foreign. To a Jewish mindset so this friend said well would you like to pray I said I don't know how to pray you know in my bar mitzvah they gave me a page I read it uh, give me a page I'll, I'll read it and the second thing that was even more shocking than that was that some of them were familiar with passages in the Hebrew scriptures that I wasn't very well familiar with in school we would study certain chapters and we would skip over a lot, of the, a lot of the other passages, but they referred me to passages that they called prophetic or messianic, that talk about the Messiah. And I was amazed. I said, well, how come you guys know the, the Hebrew scripture? I mean, this is ours. And they said, no, it's, it's the whole Bible is one book. And I said, well, I, I have a Bible at home and I've never seen the New Testament. I decided to check it out. So I read the Hebrew scriptures and I saw there was the same one as we had, I had one in Hebrew, and those passages were right in there, telling when the Messiah will be born, what will he do, how are we going to recognize him? Reading this, I became very curious, and I said to myself, I have to read the New Testament. So I actually got one in Hebrew, and every morning, I would kind of look at it, and then look away, go about doing my things. Finally, I said to myself, well, Eris, you're a hypocrite because you would read Hindu writings and Buddhist writings and whatever, but when it comes to Jesus, you know, you avoid. And I started reading. I was very surprised. First of all, it took place in Israel, in places I've been to many, many times. Growing up in Israel, I've never ever heard anything about Jesus of Nazareth. I've never met a Christian person. I've never seen a New Testament. I had absolutely no idea what it meant. It is particularly ridiculous because I had first degree family living uh, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And throughout my childhood, we would visit them several times a year, swim, fish, but I had no idea that Jesus or his disciples, you know, ever existed. We refer to this phenomenon as Jesus being the best kept secret among the Jewish people. As I read about all the religious institutions, they're still very much with us among the Jewish people to this day. But Yeshua was different. I felt very drawn to him. He he did not try to do things to win men's favor. And so I started a process of comparing the prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures about the Messiah and how we're gonna recognize him, and the fulfillment in Yeshua in the New Testament. And to my amazement, it matched. I became convinced first in my head. Then in my heart, that Yeshua is indeed the promised Messiah of our people. Shortly after that, I started noticing changes in myself. I had a great hunger to read the Word of God, the Hebrew Scriptures, and the New Testament. So thinking that I am the first Jewish person since the time of Paul the Apostle, whom I read about in the New Testament, I felt that God is calling me to go back to Israel and tell my family, tell my friends, tell my neighbors, my people, and everybody else that I meet about this great discovery that Yeshua is not just the Messiah of the Gentiles He's also our Messiah After becoming a follower of Yeshua I became overwhelmed with a sense of joy on the one hand, but also urgency because I said How come nobody nobody told me before I mean my family my neighbors my friends my people Nobody knows nobody tells us and I felt very strongly that I need to go and tell my people I Decided to surprise my family. My dad was there and I told them that I believe in Yeshua the Messiah The consensus was that in some way or fashion. I've lost my mind my dad's family They have uh, arranged for me a meeting with the chief psychiatrist in our city and he actually formally declared me to be sane. I should have asked for that in writing. My mom's family arranged for me a meeting with a rabbi and the rabbi promised my mom that he would prove to me that Yeshua is not the Messiah. The day before our meeting, the rabbi called my mom and he canceled the meeting. To my great joy, I discovered there were other believers. I discovered there was a congregation of Jewish believers and I started going there and so I told them I want to study the Word of God is there any Bible school or Bible college or something like that I can go and invest some time and just study the Bible and they said well no there's nothing and I completed my doctoral studies in the United States after that with my wife and young children we came back to Israel I knew that God has called me to serve Him, but I didn't know exactly where. I remember very vividly how it felt coming to know Yeshua and having a deep desire to study the scriptures and not knowing how to do it. And I felt very strongly that I need to go and provide this opportunity for Israeli believers, both Jewish and Arab, to study the Word of God in Hebrew right where it happened. And to that, I dedicate my life. Well, shalom y'all, and good morning. That was my Texan. All right, well, a real pleasure to be with you this morning, and... um, I'll uh, share a little bit of my spiritual journey with you, uh, what you saw in that video. I'll uh, share a little bit more of what we do later. Uh, I will say that God has blessed me with uh, uh, one wife, uh, three children who are young adults, and um, uh, a ministry to our people, and I'll, I'll share some more about that. You know, I, I titled this message uh, this morning, Can a Nation Be Born in One Day? And this is actually a rhetorical question that God is asking in the book of Isaiah in chapter 66 and verse 8. The background in this chapter is, uh, you know, it's the end of Isaiah's prophecy. God is speaking about his final judgment to the nations, about the fact that he, God, is always faithful to his promises. And uh, he also says, it's kind of right before the new heaven and new earth, He's asking this rhetorical question, he's talking about the Jewish people, about the nation of Israel, and he's asking the prophet, can a nation be born in one day? And uh, really, that's, like I said, a rhetorical question. God is inviting us to look at the wonderful thing that he is doing. So um, why should it be so surprising, I guess, that God will create a nation in one day? Well, first of all, you know, physically speaking, it usually takes at least several generations to create a nation, but more than that, you know, when, when God is talking about the Jewish people, I'm going to say a few more words about this later, but, you know, in, in uh, a few months ago, in April 2018, a little less than a year ago, the modern state of Israel celebrated its 70th anniversary, something that would seem absolutely unthinkable you know, throughout church history. So shortly after, just as a little bit of a background uh, historically, you know, uh, a few years, 40 years after the resurrection of Christ, the Roman army destroyed Jerusalem, burnt the temple down, killed all the people, destroyed the city, and the Jewish people went on a diaspora that lasted 2,000 years. Now, this is the context for God's question. Can a nation be gathered in one day or be born in one day. I'll tell you a little more on on what God did uh, as it comes to the Jewish people but I also want to especially talk about today about not so much only about the physical gathering of the Jewish people but also a spiritual renewal that is taking place and a lot of people are not aware of. Now you may have heard you may have heard that there is a teaching in the church, and it started actually uh, very, you know, several several hundred years after the ministry of Christ on this earth, a teaching that says the, something like the following: the Jewish people have rejected Christ on his first coming, which is, by the way, a very sad but true fact, at least on a national level, not on an individual, but on a national level. But the reasoning goes of this teaching that since the Jews rejected Christ, God has rejected the Jews. In other words, despite the unconditional promises God made to Abraham and his descendants, the Jewish people, God changed his mind. Something got him so angry that he changed his mind and replaced the Jewish people with the church. Now, if you heard this teaching, let me make a statement about it. It was born by the fallen archangel we call Satan in an attempt to deceive the church because so-called replacement theology, this teaching, is not about Israel at all. It's about the God of Israel. It means it tells us something, if we believe it, it tells us something about who God is. And God is asking many places in the scripture, He says, or He says, He doesn't ask, says, God is not a man that he will go back on his word, or a son of man that he will change his mind. In other words, many times in the scripture we read, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He does not change. If he says he's going to do something, he will do it. Now going back on, and by the way, this has implication for our own life, but I also want to ask another question. You, may, I hope you're asking yourselves, I mean, this is great. We, we'd love to hear about what God is doing among the Jewish people, you know, it's it's an important mission field, you know, like other mission fields, and that's by the way true. But I would like to submit to you that what God is doing to in with Israel with the Jewish people has ha- actually has an implication or implications to your life in Paris, Texas today. On multiple levels, but let me mention one you know, kind of central level. You know, many places in the Bible, both in the Hebrew Bible. And in the New Testament, God keeps telling us, be understanding of the times. Or understand the times. By which God means not just know the hour, you know, in the day. Or the day in the week. Or the date in the month. That's not what he means. That's not the primary thing he means. What he means, understand the timetable of God for humanity. You know, in the scripture, by the way, about... Um, A a large proportion of the scriptures is consisted of what is called prophetic literature. Prophetic literature. You know, a big portion of the scripture. And it deals, God is telling us what He's going to do. And He's urging us, study this and be understanding the times. And I'd like to submit to you that the way God is dealing with Israel is a key, is a central key for His blessing and His timetable for all the nations. And so it does have implication on your life today. So, um, still in Isaiah, still in an introduction. I mean, Isaiah 11. Next slide, please. There it is. Isaiah 11, (coughs) excuse me, 11, 11 and 12. And in that passage, God says the following. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time. To recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left, and then he says different places, verse 12. And he shall set up an ensign for the nation, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now, here's what's going on here. The prophet Isaiah prophesied before the first exile of the Jewish people, what's called the Babylonian exile, that lasted 70 years, you may remember. Uh, from the Old Testament. But what's peculiar here, God is telling Isaiah, by the way, there's going to be a second exile, and there's going to be a second gathering. Now, this second exile, God has not timed it like He did the first. The first exile was 70 years. The second, history tells us, was close to 2,000 years. But here are some interesting facts. Now, these are facts, historical facts. You know, when the Jewish people went on the dias- to the second diaspora by the Romans, uh, the entire Jewish re- uh, religious leadership was destroyed. There were very, very, very few survived. The histori- uh, uh, historian, uh, a Roman historian from that period tells us that the price of a Jewish slave was less than that of a, a loaf of bread in Rome. Because there were so many Jewish slaves. It was just so cheap. So, it was almost annihilated the Jewish people. but uh, And then, of course, the language that was spoken, the Hebrew language, the language of the Hebrew Bible, was a dead language. So, not only were the Jews people without a land for 2,000 years, the language was dead for 1,500 years. No one was using it, except very few scholars that could read the Hebrew Bible. Now, nowhere in history, nowhere in history, Did a nation under these conditions Kept its national identity Came back to its land And renewed its language No other historical evidence to anything even close to this Now all that to say This is part of the sign That God is doing for the nations Because let me tell you a little bit of statistics Today in the world There are a little less well, around 13 and a half million Jews in the entire world. That's it. A little over 50% of them, a little over half, reside in the land of Israel. This is something that has not existed since the time of Jesus. At least the time of Jesus, maybe before. So let me put, let me, let me put it a different way. There are more Jewish people residing in the land of Israel today, speaking Hebrew as our mother tongue, than the rest of the world Jewish people, and the rest of the world combined. So I'm 50 years old, you know, me, my father already before me, we were born and raised in Israel, and our mother tongue is Hebrew. Something that would be considered absolutely unthinkable throughout, you know, church history. So God is doing something, and He's very faithful to His Word. Uh, In the next slide, you know, when uh, I particularly say this, because last year, as I mentioned in April... We have celebrated, we've commemorated 70 years to the nation of Israel. If you look, if you search in your concordance uh, or, you know, whether it's online or a physical one, uh, the expression 70 years, you will find it appears five or six times throughout the scripture, but it always talks about God gathering the Jewish people back to the land as, as a sign, as a symbol uh, to all the people. Now, you may have heard... Um, when I'm talking about a critical tipping point, you may have heard about the Sisyphus effect. It's from the Greek mythology of, of a, a man that is pushing a great big stone up a mountain and how difficult it is. But when he reaches the top of the mountain, he reaches the, what's called the critical tipping point. And from there on, pushing the rock down the mountain is, is very easy. It kind of takes care of itself. And I would like to submit to you that spiritually... We live in, in that kind of a critical tipping point in, in our day. And I would also like to tell you that we are, I believe, we are a privileged generation, a especially blessed generation. And I will not only say this because we enjoy a lot of freedoms. You know, a lot of God's people throughout history did not have the freedom to gather like we gather. I mean, have, there are many Christians around the world that need to, to meet in hiding. We have that freedom in America, by the way, also in Israel. It's a great thing. We are blessed this way. We also enjoy a lot of relative affluence and uh, relative, you know, a lot of resources. We enjoy technology. There's a lot of information that we can have access to. Not something to take, you know, for granted. But that's not the real reason I say we are a blessed generation. The real reason I say we are a blessed generation is because we live in a time and an age where we can see God's word... Things that would have seemed absolutely unthinkable taking place before our very eyes. Now I'd like to take you um, to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is an interesting prophet. I'm not going to tell you a whole lot about him,, but I will say he came from a priestly family. He was a young man when God called him to start his ministry as a prophet. You know, um his prophet was, uh, I mean, his ministry was very difficult. I mean, if you're a priest, Under the Mosaic Covenant, your duties are very clear. If you're a prophet, it's much more complicated. Because you have to hear from God and give the message to the people. And the message, by the way, was never popular. Now, in some way, we are commissioned with something similar. I'm going a little bit sideways here, but I'll come back in a second. We need to take a message from God, the message of salvation, the message of Jesus, the message of the gospel, to a world... That is either largely indifferent or negative but that's so anyway we can identify but on the on the 37th chapter and i'm going to read with you uh first uh the first eight verses for now god is speaking to the prophet about something pretty particular peculiar note this the hand of the lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the lord and set me down in the midst of the valley and it was full of bones Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied, this is Ezekiel speaking, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I, was, and as I prophesied, there was a noise and, a, and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath or no spirit in them. So pretty peculiar kind of vision. You know, the people of Israel are on the first diaspora here. And in Babylon, in today's Iraq, you know, it's kind of a desert kind of a climate, very hot and very dry. And he comes with this great open valley, and it's full of bones. In other words, it's not people that just died. But it's people that were s- dead for quite a while. And the bones were so dry in the desert. They didn't decompensate. Decompos- compensate. Whatever. <laughs> Forgive me. I'm getting tired here. My body tells me it's another hour in the day. But, um, but there were so many of them. And they were m- kind of spread all over. By the way, which is the ultimate uncleanness under the, Mose- the Mosaic Covenant. But... And God says, he will say it later on in the following verses, this is the nation of Israel in the diaspora. You know, under the Mosaic covenant, God told the sons of Israel, he says, if you walk in my ways, I'm going to give you great blessings. But if you will not, I will have to use discipline, disciplinary measures to bring you to the right way. And the ultimate discipline was Diaspora, leaving God's country and going into the diaspora. And that's where they are, all over this valley. So the first time God tells Ezekiel to prophesy, the bones, something really peculiar is happening. And again, try to imagine this. The bones that are kind of mixing, covering this whole valley kind of come together. There's this noise of the bones hitting each other. And they come together, they form a skeleton. And then on the skeleton, you know, there's sinews and then there's muscles. And then skin covers them. And that's it. There's this huge valley. Now that it's not full of stone or of bones, it's full of dead bodies. Dead cadavers. And that's kind of the situation where, where we live it. And that means, by the way, that's the first phase of God's restoration of Israel. It's a physical gathering, but there's no spirit in them. Okay, so that's the first phase. Um, <clears throat> Now what I have for you there, I'm going to read in just a moment Ezekiel 37, uh, the following verses, but I have a picture for you. How many of you have been to Israel? Not many. Nobody, actually. Um, I'll say a word about this later on, but on the the left-hand side, you can see the city of Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is not our capital. Jerusalem is, but Tel Aviv is our main, is our largest city, the business center of Israel, at the center of Israel. And what you can see now, on the left in 1932, there was almost nothing there. In a little over 70 years, on the right-hand side, you can see the Tel Aviv skyline today. It's like New York or Hong Kong. You know, something that, like I said again, you could not even have imagined. And yet God said, can I do it in one day? And yes, by the way, this day that God's referring to was... um, On November 29th, 1947. That was the day that the United Nations, representing the nations, voted on establishing the the country, the land of Israel. So anyway, let's go on to read the following verses. So that's the physical gathering. Verses 9 to 14. Also he said to me, God said to me, prophesy to the Spirit, prophesy, Son of Man, And say to the Spirit, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, or spirit, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. Note a second time. And the Spirit came into them, and they lived, and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. And you know, this last verse, verse 11, throughout the history of the Jewish people, there were many times, there there were a lot of persecution, I'm going to say a word about that in a moment, but there were many times where Jewish people would say to God, will you please choose another nation, stop choosing, we don't want to be chosen, it brings us nothing but persecution and problems. Now let me ask you this, now you may remember in the Old Testament, you know, Pharaoh, before the exodus, he tried to destroy, all the, he tried to destroy the Jewish people. Later, a, a thousand some years later, in the time of uh, the Persian Empire, Haman tried to annihilate the Jews. And, you know, again, jump another a thousand years forward, or a little less than a thousand years forward, we have Herod, who tried to kill the babies in Bethlehem. What was the purpose of this annihilation? to prevent the Messiah to prevent Christ from being born. But well, praise God, Christ was born, came into this world, and died on our behalf on the cross and rose again. He's now on the first on the right right hand side of God, interceding on our behalf. So here's a question that I seem I think is is begged to be asked. I mean, if that has already happened, why does Satan keep trying to annihilate the Jewish people. I mean, what's the purpose? What's the purpose? You know, in the last, in the last 2,000 years, there have been multiple, multiple persecutions for the Jewish people. You know, we, I'm going to say a few words about the Holocaust, where the Nazi regime tried to systematically destroy, annihilate all the Jews from the planet. Why? Why? I mean, this, it, by the way, it's all from the same source, same spiritual source. But why destroy the Jews now if Christ has already come? And the answer is this. First of all, Satan knows full well that God is not changing and that he will keep everything he promised to all of humanity but also to Israel. And so he's trying to show God to be a liar. That's one. Two, he also knows that Israel is the key. It's not the purpose. Israel is not the purpose, but it's the key or the vehicle for God's blessing to go to all the nations, and by the way, for Christ's return. And this is why he's trying to destroy the Jewish people, but as we see, you know, God will not let him. Now, uh, I'm going to give you a two-minute Jewish History 101. I'm going to go over this very, very, very fast for time's sake, but... Just to get an idea, when I say, well, the Jewish people were persecuted, tried to be, I mean, Satan tried to annihilate them, annihilate them in the last 2,000 years. What did it look like? So, 70 AD, I mentioned the destruction of Jerusalem, 135 AD. Um, again, this is when the Romans came. Millions of Jews died, very few survived. Jump ahead a thousand years. The Crusade started. You know, the, the Jews were not the enemies of the Crusaders, the Muslims in the Holy Land were. Nevertheless, Um, You know, when when the Crusaders started walking towards the Holy Land, um, they killed the Jewish communities on their way. Jumping ahead a couple of hundred years. Next slide, please. In 1290, many people don't know this, but in 1290, all the Jews were deported from England. And for 400 years, there were no Jews in England for anti-Semitic purposes. Uh, Next slide. Again, for time purposes, I'm running with it. 1492, the biggest Jewish community in the world in the Middle Ages was in Spain. And uh, in 1492, all the Jews were forced to leave Spain. Among them, by the way, just historically speaking, uh, my ancestors on my dead side. My last name, Soref, is a typical Spanish Jewish name. In 1496, all the Jews were deported from Portugal as well. And again, I'm jumping another 500 years to our day and age. I mentioned it previously, the Holocaust, where the Nazi, Nazi regime planned to destroy all the Jews on the planet, including, but succeeded only in killing six or murdering six million Jews. Now, what's not very well known about the Holocaust, a word about that, that... Uh, Actually, let let me reverse a little bit. I'll get to to the Holocaust in just a second. I want to say something important about the Jewish people. Um, You know, since our national leaders in the time of Christ rejected Jesus as the Messiah, started a great animosity, you know, on a national level between the believers in Christ and the Jewish people. There's a lot of historical things that took place for for time's sake. I'm not going to get into it right now. But Jewish communities were built in such a way that the message of Jesus could not penetrate. In fact, to be Jewish, you could believe in whatever you want. By the way, you could believe in Buddha and be a good Jew. And you can believe in anything and be a good Jew. Except, except... If you believe in Jesus, that's the uncrossable line, then you'll be told, you're not a Jew anymore. You've betrayed your people, and so on and so on. So that's how it was. And, um, you know, there's a lot of persecution of Jewish people by the church. When I say the church, I mean mainly the Catholic Church. And um, that kind of contributed to the alienation of the message of Jesus. Now, when the Reformation took place, we just celebrated, by the way, in 2017, 500 years for the Reformation. You may be aware of this. People start reading their Bibles. And if you read your Bible, and you become a Christian, the Bible is not a regular book. If you read it, it does something to you. Uh, you heard a little bit of my story. And, uh, and then you realize, God has called me for a purpose. I need to take this message. I mean, I, I'm his messenger. I'm his ambassador. And I need to pass that on in a similar way it was passed on to me in a multiple ways. I'll tell you a little bit later how we do it. And when you do that, you say, well, how am I going to do it? And if you read your Bible, you realize God actually has a strategy for spreading the gospel. It repeats many times, but I'll just summarize it and say, in Romans 1.16, God says, take this message and take it to the whole world, to the Jew first, in terms of order, not of importance, and also to the non-Jew, to the Gentile. So, mission strategy, it's right there. the scripture before us. So after the Reformation, many Jewish agencies or Jewish mission agencies started and missionaries came to Jewish communities. But when they came, you know, they didn't look like us. They don't know our customs. They don't speak our language. And as ridiculous as it is for Jewish people, when the message of Jesus came, it was like, oh, you're bringing to us a foreign God. How ridiculous is that? But that's how it was. However, there were in the time of the eve of the Holocaust... There is historical evidence that throughout Europe that had the biggest concentration of Jewish people, there were a quarter of a million, 250,000 Jewish followers of Jesus in the continent of Europe. Now, they were among the six million that were murdered. Now, in the picture on the screen, you can see my wife's great-great-grandfather. A Polish Jew that was Orthodox came to faith in Jesus... By the way, his last name means that he's from the tribe of Levi, from a priestly family. Um, and as a believer in Jesus, he was taken with the rest of the Jews in Germany and murdered in, uh, in concentration camp. So after World War II, there was great change in the Jewish world. Because the center of the Jewish world, and also of the Messianic Jewish world, the Jewish believers in Jesus, moved from Europe to America. Now the state of Israel was the emotional center, but the real center was in America. That's where we had the great rabbis, the great scholars, the great business people. But in the last 30 years, we see a process of it moving from America back to Israel. Not just in terms of numbers, as I mentioned, but also um, in other aspects. And here's the interesting thing where I'm going with all this. The center of the Jewish believers in Jesus is also moving from America back to the land of Israel. So talking about seven years, you know the number of Jewish people after the Holocaust it was about ten million Jews in the entire world, of which less than ten percent do we have the table? Next next slide please. In nineteen forty eight, when the State of Israel was established, there are around ten and a half million people around the uh, Jewish people around the world. Of them less than ten percent, and eight hundred and fifty uh, people in our 50,000 people reside in the land of Israel. In 70 years, a little over 13 million Jewish people around the world, over half of them reside in Israel. Again, just God's faithfulness. Next slide, you see the progression of Jewish believers. When the state of Israel was established in 1948, there were 23 believers in the entire country. That's it. That's what it was. 23 messianic or jewish believers in christ in 70 years there were more than 300 churches or congregations established in the land of israel and over 30,000 messianic jews in the entire country now 30,000 is not a large number you know in texas sizes you know one mega church in one weekend you have more than 30,000 but i want you to notice if i would be if i were to graph it of what happened in the last 70 years it looks like this. It spikes. So, you know, when I became a follower of Jesus, this was in 1992, I was so excited. I, I enrolled in university several months after, and I, would, I shared the gospel with my fellow students and everybody else that I would meet, and every time I would get the same response. Now, you know how it is. If you have someone, you're walking down the street, someone coming to you, and you kind of look at the way they dress, and then when they get closer, they open their mouths... And they speak to you, you can immediately, you know, kind of put him or her in a box. Are they local? Are they not local? Are they Yankees? Are they Texans? What are they? <laughs> and so, when they see me in Israel, they, and they hear the way I speak, they realize I'm a native Israeli, and Hebrew is my native tongue. So, then they hear me talk to them about Jesus, and I would always get the same response. Always. It was, it was like, how come you talk to us about Jesus? I mean, you're a Jew. What's going on here? I mean, Jews don't believe in Jesus. This is, you know, almost 30 years ago. Now, now, when there's around 30,000 of us, it's very, very, very different. By the way, when I say 30,000, this is just, this is 30,000 people that are, are Messianic Jews that are locally, I mean, they are gathering regularly in the local church. I think the actual number is probably at least three times bigger, at least, But today, is very different in Israeli society. Our younger generation is much more open to spiritual things, including Jesus. Not only Jesus, but including Jesus. So, a true story. I'll tell you a story about my son. So, uh, um, well, before I tell you something about my son, I'll tell you a story about my son. But before that, let me tell you something else. You know, uh, I mentioned that we're blessed with technology and can get a lot of information. Let me tell you something about Israelis. We've not been to Israel, so it may be difficult to believe, but... Check me out on this, secular international research kind of looked at different nations and their patterns of using media, in particular smartphones and social networks like Facebook, Instagram, you know, YouTube and so on. And what they found was that Israelis are number one in the world in the amount of time we spend online Surfing social networks on our smartphones. If you can believe it, the average Israeli spends 60% more time a day than the average American. It's pretty, pretty sad, but but that what it means is that's where our young people are. That's where they are. And if whatever it is we want to tell them, if we don't take it here, they will simply not hear it because they're not there. So we started, we invested a lot of resources, a lot of resources in telling our people about Jesus through short videos, like the short video you've seen that I've did. You know, most of what we do is actually not in English. is in Hebrew, in Arabic. I'll tell you more about this in a moment. So, anyhow, as background, now to my son. My son's in the army. He's 21. In Israel, we have to go to the army. Okay? Oh, by the way, by the way, you know, there's a the clock counting down for me. Um, but Middle Eastern, looking at time, is not like American. Plus, I know there's not another... Session, so I, I may go for another couple of hours. I hope you don't mind. If you need, if you need a potty break, just no, not not really, not really. I'll, I'll try. But anyway, so in Israel, we have to go to the army. Uh, guys go for three years, girls go for two years. So uh, my second son is now in the army doing his term. And uh, about a couple of years ago, when he just came to a new army base, he had an interview with his commander, and he told the commander, uh, "I'm a Messianic Jew. I'm a, a Jewish person that believes in Jesus." And, uh, and so on. He said, okay. They talked about it a little bit. You know, the word got around. Um, and that was it kind of thing. But as it turns out, one of the soldiers in my son's unit started watching our videos. And he really got into it, watched a lot of them. I mean, there's over 200 of them. And he got really into it. And He started walking around the army base saying to his buddies, he said, you're not going to believe this. We've not been told this, but Jesus is actually the Messiah. And, you know... I, I can show you, and you know you start talking to them, very enthusiastic. So finally, one of the guys tells him, well, if, if you're a Messianic Jew, you should talk to Daniel, my son, because Daniel's a Messianic Jew. So this guy comes to my son, he says, uh, hey, Daniel, I'm, I'm a Messianic Jew like you, and um, you know, what do you do? I mean, the guy had no clue. What, what, so what does it mean? What do you do? So my son tells him, well, you know, uh, a good start is to read your Bible. So this guy tells him, well, I don't have a Bible. So my son says, okay, let me see what I can do. He calls me up says, Dad, I need a Bible. I said, okay, next time you come home, I'll give you a Bible. I give him a Bible. He gives it to this guy. This guy keeps going around all over the base and telling everybody uh, about Jesus. And, and then, then, you know, they have a base-wide meeting. All the, all the soldiers in the base, I mean, they do it once a month or whatever. So the commander is standing there talking about whatever he's talking. And then uh, he had some, I don't know, another 10 minutes or something and he says, okay, I'm hearing all this talk about Jesus and, and uh, all that kind of a thing. Daniel, come on up and tell everybody. You have ten minutes. Tell everybody, uh, what's this whole thing about Jesus and Messianic Jews? What do you guys believe? So my son is not the kind of person that likes to talk to crowds, but he recognized this with something God kind of set up for him. So he comes to the stage, and for ten minutes, he's talking to everybody. I mean, there's a talk about captive audience. The commander told them to listen. And uh, so he's talking to them about Jesus. And uh, so, and the, oh, interesting thing. After that, different people started coming to my son say, Hey, can we, can we have a Bible too? So my son calls me up and says, Dad, I need, you know, I need a few more Bibles. I said, Okay, next time you come home, I'll give you a box. So he actually took a box of Bible to the army base, giving it to his buddies. So my point is, you know, very different times. There's a great openness among the younger generation of Jewish people in Israel. You know, I will say this. By the way, it doesn't mean, this great, there, there is great openness. And that's part of the um, window of opportunity we have now before. We know there are difficult times coming up ahead of us. But um, uh, with this great openness, we want to take advantage of it. So uh, let me show you another, one of my favorite pictures from the last couple of years. So you see uh, on, the, on the slide, you see four guys. Three of them are uh, Jewish and one of them is an Arab. And uh, it's probably pretty difficult to say who's the Arab. I asked several people, and they always guess wrong. It's the middle guy. He's a wonderful young man. The rest are, uh, the, the other three are Jewish. And they all heard the gospel first when they went to Google and typed Messiah or Yeshua. Or they came to our websites. They saw our, our videos on Facebook. And that was their first touch. And then when they got interested, they called us up. And, um, and that is something that is happening on a scale... That has not happened before. And you know, here's the interesting thing. In Israel, or in the Jewish community in America as well for that matter, to be Jewish and believe in Jesus is not a socially acceptable thing. It's not. I mean, some families disown their sons or daughters. You heard my family took me to the psychiatrist and to the rabbi and all that. Um, So it's not. But we are free, we are a democracy, and evangelism is legal to adults. We are free to exercise our faith. So there's a great window of opportunity. Now, if you have uh, my guess is that probably much of your exposure to things having to do with Israel is through the local news. And if you watch the local news, you see that you know, the Jews and the Arabs don't get along. The sons of Isaac, the sons of Ishmael, we always fight. Uh, we call each other cousins. But it's a pretty long family feud of 4,000 years. So, you know, we're accustomed to fight with one another. But here's some good news that unfortunately is not broadcasted on the the television. And that is that in the Messiah, the Jews and the Arabs love each other. And, you know, we are not a so-called reconciliation ministry. I mean, our goal, our stated goal is not to bring Jews and Arabs together to hug. That's not the goal. But it happens naturally, because we share the gospel with everybody. And when the Jews and the Arabs come to know the Lord, they love each other. So as more people are coming to know the Lord, we are also... Next slide, please. We also are training both the young disciples as well as the senior pastors in the one and only accredited Bible college in the entire country. Israel, I mentioned, I think, is in the size of New Jersey, so it's a small country. But there's only one Bible college, the one for Israel operates, and we serve all of the Christian community. So in this picture it's it's a mix. It's hard to say who's a Jew, who's an Arab. Next slide, again, these are some of Israel's senior pastors. We all kind of dark, you know, we all look alike, but it's actually a mixed picture. The other day I had a guest before just before I came, I had a guest that came and he saw this picture on our campus, and he was trying to guess who's a Jew who's an Arab. He got it wrong. we all look alike, cousins, as I said. Now you know, kind of like my testimony, next slide, please. Like my testimony in English, the majority of stuff we produce is actually in Hebrew. And so, you know, there are testimonials like this young man who uh, had cancer, and the Lord healed him. And he's telling his story in five minutes. Amen. And people read this or or watch this, and they say, well, maybe there's something in there. I mean, their God is actually, you know, doing things, stuff. So a lot of reactions. We also started getting a lot of responses from Muslims, from our neighboring countries. We started producing stuff in Arabic. So we also do testimonials of, this is the next slide, there it is, of Muslim people that have become followers of Jesus. And you can watch all of this, by the way, if you go to our website, uh, one for Israel, ORG. So exciting times in Israel, in the Middle East, and all that to say, you know, you probably heard the expression or read the expression in the Bible. It's from the book of Daniel. Jesus is talking about it called the times of the Gentiles. This expression is talking about the period of time that Gentile powers um, control the world and specifically control the land of Israel and the temple mount where the, where the uh, temple uh, needs to be, which, by the way, is a condition for Christ's return. Now in 1967, talking about understanding the time, for the first time in almost 2,000 years, the Temple Mount is controlled once again by a sovereign Jewish state. It had not happened since the time of Jesus. So, you know, when I was um, a young disciple of Christ, I really wanted to serve and I didn't know what to do. So I went to you know the leaders in the, in the church that I went and I said, look, I want to help. What can I do? And uh, they say, well, uh, how are you with children? I said, I... I don't, don't really know. You know, it was before I married. I, so there's the, the, you know, the person in charge. She'll tell you what to do. So anyway, I was teaching the kids. I was petrified. I said, I need help. I mean, I don't, I don't know how to tell a story to kids. So I'm going to give you this high-tech device. And if you're over 40, you'll know what I mean. It's called flannel graph. A flannel graph is a piece of, of, of cloth that you put figures to illustrate the story. And I'm telling you this because the way God is dealing with Israel is the flannel graph for his timetable for the nations. So I'll close for now. By the way, so many of you, or really all of you, have not been to Israel. Um, You know, I encourage you to go. And I promise you, if you visit Israel, you will never read your Bible the same way again. It's kind of like watching black and white television and watching it in color. And um, so you have this little booklet. It's more information about us. You're welcome to look at it. Uh, We'd love for you to visit our website. You have this little uh, leaflet. It talks about the ministry trips we have three times a year uh, to Israel. We'd love to have you. And you have this. If you want to hear it from us, you can register on the website as well. But this is just a contact card. So fill it up, and we'd love to send you our newsletter. As I close, and I was only, I think, like five or six minutes, you know, so there's plenty of time ahead, but here's what I want to do. I want to bless you, and if you don't mind, I want to do the ironic blessing in Hebrew over you, and, um, and then I'll close and pass it on to the pastor. Okay? So let me pray for you. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.